Well, many of you know I grew up in New Westminster, about a 30-minute drive from here, one of the suburbs of Vancouver. And so on weekends, our family would regularly spend one of the afternoons going to our local pool, the Canada Games Pool. Has anyone ever been to the Canada Games Pool before? That's right. Anybody live in New West or grow up in New West? Come on, hands up. My New West brother up top, there you are. I'm sure some of you else are too as well. But we would spend our weekends often at the Canada Games Pool. And even back then, I was immensely competitive, to no surprise of my colleagues. We would do little competitions, like who could do the best jump or flip off of the short diving board, or who could dive off of the top one. It's pretty scary. But one of my favorite competitions was who could run the furthest on the water. <laughs> Some of you are trying to figure out where's this going. Uh, at the Canada Games Pool, like often many pools, they had these mats that were floating on top of the water that would be lined up one in front of the other. And all the kids would line up and would take turns trying to run on these flimsy mats to see how far they could go. The thing is, these mats really weren't designed to hold your weight, were they? So if you take a step onto them and you try and stand, they sink and they move and very quickly you fall off. And so the goal, ideally, is to try and run to the end and get off the edge of the mat. But very quickly, usually, you're thrown aside. And over time, you learn that, really, because these mats aren't designed to hold your trust, to hold your faith, they're not designed to hold you on the water, it's really all about you, your skill, your athleticism, or some things you learn, like getting a running start or staying as close to center as possible, or as few steps as possible. The less steps you have, the less likely you are to fall. But at the end of the day, the reason most of the time you fall into the water is because these mats are not designed to hold you there. They're not designed to hold a person's weight on the water. It's not designed to hold our trust, to hold our faith, as we step out of the safety of the side of the pool and step on the water. We're in a sermon series here, tenth, called Encounters with Jesus. And we've been looking at different people in the Gospels who have had an encounter with Jesus and what it meant for them to have that encounter. For some of them, it meant an encounter with joy or an encounter with healing. And today, we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus had with Peter. One where Peter is in the safety of a boat, and he steps out of that safe space in order to encounter Jesus on the water. And we'll see, in contrast to my opening story, unlike those water mats, which aren't designed for us to step out onto the water and for them to hold us, that we can step out onto the water, even in the midst of the storms, because Jesus can hold us there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he, Jesus, dismissed the crowd. After Jesus had dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he, Jesus, was alone. 
And the boat, which the disciples were on, was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the water, or walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they shouted, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that Peter had this encounter with you. Being able to step out of the boat to take a risk to encounter you. And wherever we are today, whether we feel like we've already stepped out of the boat and we feel like we're in the middle of the storm, or we feel maybe like we're being called to step out, that today we could have an encounter with you and see more truly and fully who you are and why we can trust you. Amen. Prior to the passage that I just read, Jesus had been given the news that his cousin and friend, John the Baptist, had been murdered. So Jesus is up on a mountainside, possibly mourning his cousin and his friend, but spending time in silence and solitude with God the Father in prayer. Somehow, this large crowd of over 5,000 people managed to find Jesus all alone on the mountain. And we're told that rather than sending them away, that Jesus had compassion on them. And he healed many of them. And shortly after that, he even feeds this group of over 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish. It was a miracle. And at sometime while that's happening, the disciples arrive as well, and they're a part of that miracle. But Jesus, wanting to be alone again, tells the disciples to go ahead of him, to get into a boat and to go to the other side of the lake, and that he, Jesus, would dismiss the crowd. And so those disciples leave, and they go ahead of him. And Jesus dismisses the crowd, and he returns back to the mountain to pray. Then the scene shifts, and we see the disciples on the boat in the middle of the lake, roughly three miles from land, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So the very, very early morning. Maybe the sun has just broke, and there's some fragments of light in there, but quite dark. And the sea, which had previously been very calm, begins to break, and a storm rolls in. And the wind and the wave begin to break upon the boat. So much so that we're told that the boat in our passage was buffeted by the waves, but more literally, it means the boat was tormented by the waves. 
The boats and the disciples were tormented by the waves. It's quite a storm. Peter and some of the other disciples were fishermen. They were used to choppy weather and bad storms, and yet they're in such a bad storm that the gospel writer Matthew tells us that the boat and the disciples were tormented by those waves. Have you ever been on a boat in the middle of a storm? I remember being uh, on a BC ferry and coming back from Salt Spring Island where my parents live. And we were on one of those ferries and when we left, the the sea was relatively calm. But as we got into the narrow pass, the winds picked up and the sea became choppier. And soon, the relatively calm seas were extremely stormy. And as we looked outside, our view was constantly changing because of the huge waves and the way it was rocking our boats. We would look out and we would see the sea and then the tops of the mountains. So we were really moving quite a lot side by side. And then before we knew it, the dishes were flying off white spot shells and through the hallways. It was quite the storm. But we were in a big boat. So to be honest, even though a part of me feared, you know, what might happen in the worst of cases, generally I felt pretty calm sipping my cup of tea on my BC ferry. (laughs) But the disciples were not on a BC ferry, were they? They were in a tiny ancient fishing boat. That is why the disciples felt terrified. The storm for them was not a space of safety. It was a place of great vulnerability. A place of fear. No wonder they in the boat felt tormented by the waves. They knew that if their boat hit the wrong wave at the wrong time in the wrong way, it could easily capsize. In the middle of a dark storm, they could easily be lost to one another and to their boat and be swept out into sea. This was a very dangerous space for the disciples. The storm for the disciples is a place of fear. It's a place of vulnerability. It's not a place that you want to be. And then if things weren't bad enough already, looking out from their boat in the middle of the dark, maybe with just a few rays of light around them, they see a figure begin to emerge from the darkness. Oh man, that's enough to make even the most seasoned fishermen lose their marbles. And this figure, which initially they call a phantasma, a phantom, or a ghost, then calls out to them in the darkness. It says these words, and this will be my more literal translation rather than what we read earlier in the NIV. So this is my more literal translation of what it says in the Greek. Be brave, I am, do not fear. Three things, be brave, I am, and do not fear. This figure, which we will learn later, was Jesus, calls out to the disciples while walking on the water in the middle of a terrible storm and says to them, be brave, I am, and do not fear. So he says to the disciples two things, be brave and do not fear. And then he says one thing about himself right in the middle of that. He says, I am. And as we will see, being brave and not fearing has everything to do with the middle part of that statement, I am. But we'll get to that in a little bit. And Peter, in the midst of 
mostly darkness, in the midst of crashing waves, in the midst of howling winds, in the midst of possibly the disciples screaming for their lives, hears this voice. And somehow he manages to recognize or believe he recognizes the voice of Jesus in it. And so he calls out, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. Before Peter follows, he recognizes. In the midst of a storm, in the midst of all of the voices around him, in the midst of all the noise, Peter manages to recognize the voice of Jesus. In John 10, we hear this amazing passage where it says, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And in this passage, we get a beautiful example of what it's like for the disciples to hear the voice of Jesus. Peter spent years with Jesus by this point, well enough that he can recognize his voice in the midst of a storm. My sheep know my voice, and they follow me. And we see that in Peter. In the midst of a storm, he's able to recognize Jesus' voice. That before he can even respond, he needs to recognize. Same is true for us, too. The importance of recognizing the voice of Jesus, even in the midst of our own storms. This is why we attempt to emphasize contemplative prayer so much. Being quiet. Being silent. In the midst of a busy, chaotic, and noisy world, to simply be present and to listen to the voice of Jesus. That's why Sharon led us through a moment of silence together. So we could learn to recognize the voice of Jesus in our lives. So that even during our storms breaking upon us, that we can hear him calling out to us. It's also one of the reasons that Sharon read scripture to us. For us, scripture and Bible memorization are some of the ways that we learn to recognize Jesus' voice in our lives. I know for me, Bible memorization has been a key practice, a key way that I learn to recognize Jesus' voice and one of the ways that he speaks to me. In fact, just this last week, I was in bed, and my mind was racing. Have you ever been there? Yeah. I was tossing and turning. My mind was full of all the things that I hadn't done and I needed to do, all my fears and doubts. My mind was just plagued with them. And so rather than continuing to toss and to turn, I got up and I went for a walk just around our little, our little house. My mind continued to race. And honestly, those fears and doubts, all those things I was thinking just continued to rise up within me. But as I walked and as I prayed, eventually this small voice began to emerge within me. It turned out to be the voice of God speaking Psalm 46, which I had spent some time years before, at least in part, taking time to memorize. So I heard this voice say, God is our strength and shield, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, do not fear. Though the earth give way and fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters surge and foam, and the mountains quake with their trembling. That's what I felt like. And then a little bit later in the psalm, be still. And know that I am God. 
In the midst of my own chaotic situation, the feelings in my mind, the feelings of fear and doubt and worry, God was saying, be still and know that I am God. That God is my strength and refuge, my present help in times of trouble. And slowly those doubts and those fears and my mind that was bouncing with my to-do list began to fade away. And I was able to go back to bed praying the psalm over and over again. One of the ways that we can learn to recognize God's voice and one of the ways God can speak to us is when we read scripture. And especially when we can commit it to memory or to our hearts. And sometimes we even need some help to learn to discern God's voice, especially in times of change. And so coming up in a few weeks, my colleague Jeff Hawker, who's our spiritual formation pastor here, is going to be leading a course on discernment. What it means to discern and listen to God's voice, especially in seasons of change. If that's you, you're in a season of change, longing to listen to God's voice, then let me invite you to learn more about that course. Go to 10th.ca forward slash discernment to register or to learn more. It's going to talk through some practical and theological ways that we can learn to discern God's voice, especially in times of change in our lives. And so before we can respond to Jesus' voice, we need to learn to recognize that voice. But then hearing that voice, we're invited to respond. The pastor and author John Ortberg, who used to pastor Menlo Presbyterian Church in California, he wrote a book called Get Out of the Boat. And in it, he says, Peter is not a boat potato. So you think of the idea of a couch potato, right? Someone who's at home, sitting back on their lounger with their feet up, maybe watching TV. He says, the picture that we have of Peter is the opposite of this. It's not somebody kicking back and relaxing, but someone who's actively engaged and seeking to respond. He's leaning forward, isn't he? Peter is not a couch potato, sorry, a boat potato. And so we are invited not to be boat potatoes either. But when we hear the voice of Jesus inviting us to step out, to respond to that voice. Denise Cunahan is a part of our Mount Pleasant morning community. She's married to our worship pastor, Mark. She is a registered psychologist. She has an honors degree in theology. She's a mother. She loves Jesus. And their family is living this passage right now. So I've invited Denise to come forward to share a little bit of their family story with us and what it meant for them to take a step out of the boat and to trust Jesus in a storm. Thanks, Craig. It's so good. Every time he tells this sermon, it just speaks straight to my heart again and again. Um, so Mark and I, we were about a year ago living in a city called Durban in South Africa, which is a beautiful coastal town. And Mark had a really great job in a big thriving church um, yeah, he was really happy, had great relationships with everybody there. They had actually asked him to plant a church in Cape Town as well, so things were going really well. But something deep in our hearts just felt ajar. It didn't feel right, just something. And it wasn't anything wrong with the church, it was just something. So we started to fast and pray, and just to ask God to speak to us or to shift something um, in our lives. 
And it was during one day that we were fasting and praying where at about 10 o'clock that night, Mark got a call from someone in Canada, one of his friends, who said that conversations had happened that day around this job at 10th Church and his name had been mentioned. And that was just a breakthrough moment. And from there, this beautiful journey unfolded where we um, were able to come to Canada. And it's, it was more than we could ever have hoped for or dreamed of. And just such an exciting thought for us. And God gave us the grace to be able to say yes to the opportunity. Um, so, yeah, but a few weeks in on the journey, and I think many people in this congregation have immigrated or your parents have immigrated. So you will relate to this, um, that when you step out of the boat, you can enter into this really big duel between fear and faith. And it can feel really intense at times, this fight between fear and faith in your heart. So a couple of weeks after arriving here, um, I just uh, was feeling really overwhelmed and I finally was able to just take a quiet moment when all the kids were asleep and spend some time with Jesus. And I really felt like he whispered to my heart and he said to me that we had started this journey from such a beautiful position of trust, but that we had shifted into a position of worry and that we needed to reclaim that position of trust in our hearts. And you know, it is, it's beautiful when you're um, living from a position of trust, it's, it's incredible, everything feels good, you know, this miraculous door had opened for us to come here, the visas just worked out, you know, every step we took forward, doors just flung open for us, and coming here, meeting the church, meeting the people, just being blown away by the kindness and the beauty of this place, uh, it was really feeling good. But a couple of weeks in the reality of being in a new city started to sink in and these waves of worry started crashing over me. So my waves of worry sounded something like this. Hmm, I wonder if we're gonna make it here. This city is actually really expensive. Uh, am I ever gonna find a job with a baby and no family support? What have I done to my children, ripping them away from their friends and family and schools again, you know? Just these waves of worry coming at, at me from every side. And the problem with worry is that it can very quickly shift into direct lies that um, come right against the heart and character of God. So it shifted from, you know, will we ever find a house, the worry, into oh my word, we're never going to find a house. It's all going to fall apart. We're going to end up having to go back home and the shame, it's going to, you know, but it was real. Just this really intense assault of lies coming against us. You know, God's brought us this far, but he's just going to abandon us now. Um, and we're going to be humiliated. So just real voice of lies. And since we've been here, God has really taught us that the way to kind of stand against that and reclaim our position of trust is to just stop, stop everything we're doing, stop frantically searching for houses on Craigslist or jobs or whatever else I'm doing frantically on my phone normally, and be still before him and to spend time reading his word, which is the voice of truth, just reading his word, playing worship in our house. And it's by doing this that I've literally been able to tangibly feel myself shift back into a position of trust. 
And it's scriptures like this from Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but I will trust in the name of the Lord my God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but I will rise up and stand firm. And so it's through reading these scriptures, just like what Craig was saying, just spending time with that voice of truth that I've literally been able to feel this tangible shift from worry back to trust. And then I've been oscillating between these two spaces like hourly, it's been a crazy ride. <laughs> but yeah, that's just a little bit of where we're at as a family. And I think ultimately, you know, when you step out of the boat with Jesus, it's like you go into this intensive boot camp of really getting to know his character because you're so vulnerable and dependent on him. And we can get to know him in our day-to-day -day lives, but when you're out on the water, you really get to know him, and he's so good. So, yeah, I think just the song in my heart at the moment is turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his glorious face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thanks, Denise. When we recognize the voice of Jesus, we're invited to take a step out. Take a step out of our places of safety and security in order to follow him, even if it feels like we're stepping into a storm. For some of you, recognizing and responding to the voice of Jesus may involve a big change, like it has for the Cunahans, a new job, an international move. For some of us, responding might be more subtle. Might involve trusting Jesus with the futures of our children. Or trusting God with our finances in the midst of an expensive city. I know for Sabine and I, this has been one of the biggest ones since we were married, as we were both students for so long. Lord, if we're generous, will you continue to be generous? Will we actually have enough to pay rent next month? Can we pay our student fees? Again and again, those constant doubts and fears. Will we have enough? Will God provide? Are we enough? But when we hear the voice of Jesus inviting us to respond, we're invited to leave our spaces of safety, the places of our boats, and to step out on the water, even into a storm with him. And a part of the reason that we can step out into a storm, the reason that Peter could walk on the water was not because of his own athleticism or hard work or anything that he conjured within himself. But in stark contrast to the opening story to that mat, which wasn't designed to hold us to step out off of the ledge and onto the water, we are invited to take a step out of safety and onto the water, even into the storms, because there is someone who can hold us there. I mentioned that Matthew, in his gospel, is trying to tell us two things. One, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And two, who is this Jesus who we're following? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, in part, to step out of the boat and to follow his voice. But who is the one that we are following? Matthew's been painting that picture so far. He's a teacher. He's a healer. He does miracles, like providing food for 5,000 people. 
He's one who stands in the middle of a storm, standing on the water, calling out to the disciples. But even more than all of the miracles that he's done so far, the thing that speaks most to who Jesus is, is that threefold statement that we read earlier. Be brave, I am, do not fear. I am is the name of God. I am is God's name. It's the name that God tells to Moses back in Exodus, the self-revealing name. Moses, do you want to know who I am? I am who I am. I am the great I am. And from the middle of the storm, Jesus is calling out to Peter and the disciples saying, take a step out because I am the great I am. I am the one who created the waters. I am the one who has authority over this storm and over all of your storms. The reason that we can step out of the safety of our boats to be brave and not safe and to take a risk when we hear Jesus calling is because the great I am invites us to step out with him. That he is the one who can hold us in our storms. He is the one who is trustworthy when we take a step out on the water to hold us there. We don't have to do this by our own strength. God is the one who can hold us when we step out with him. The great I am is the one who calls us. And in that place, we're told that Peter doubts. And the word for doubt literally means to be split in two. Peter feels pulled between his desire to follow Jesus and to step out and all the voices and the waves that are roaring around him and breaking over him, the real fear that he has, he feels torn. He feels doubt. And I can recognize it in my own life too. I remember a season when I was at UBC and I'd been a Christian for a few years. And I felt deep joy in my life with God, but at this season, in part due to a number of other circumstances, I felt deeply torn between a genuine desire to follow Jesus on the one hand and to trust him and that the direction he was inviting me was good and on the other hand, all these other voices, desires and invitations that were inviting me to go in different directions. Desires especially to seek popularity and recognition from my peers and to seek a lifestyle that was in stark contrast to Jesus' invitation for my life. And if I'm honest, I felt deeply torn between those two ways. Loving God, but also deeply desiring so many other things that he was not inviting me into. I felt torn. And I remember one evening sitting at my desk at home and journaling and feeling the full weight of being torn in this way. And I looked over to my bookshelf and I saw a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and writer who opposed Hitler and the Third Reich. And I started reading this book, a book that I'd been given a number of years ago when I had been baptized. It's amazing how God can place something in our lives for the right time in the right way. And I pulled this book off the shelf and began to read it. And Bonhoeffer, in a part that was particularly meaningful to me, talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. He says this, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a person will go and sell all that they have. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which a disciple leaves his nets and follows him. 
Costly grace is the disciple is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a person must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it invites us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a person his life and his grace because it gives a person their only true life. I think the difference that Bonhoeffer is highlighting between cheap grace and costly grace is the difference between trying to follow Jesus from the safety of our boats and being willing to follow Jesus and to take a step out of safety, to take a risk and to follow him, even if it feels like we're stepping in a storm. Trying to follow Jesus from the safety of our boats is comfortable. It's safe. It's known. But following Jesus and stepping out of the boat, costly grace, costly faith, may feel like it costs something significant to us. And yet, in the words of Bonhoeffer, it gives a person the only true life. Where are your spaces of decision? Where are the places where Jesus is inviting you to leave the safety of your boat to step out into something better? A place where he's inviting you into and a place where he can hold you. Or have you already stepped out and you're in the middle of the storm feeling the wind and the brakes breaking over you? Wherever you are, where are your doubts and where are your fears? Some of those same ones maybe that Denise named. If I do this, we won't have enough. If I do this, maybe God won't provide. Or maybe I'll fail and I won't be enough. Or if I trust my children to God, maybe they'll fail. Where are the spaces where you're being invited to step out of the boat, to trust God, to take a risk, to be brave and not safe? Not for risk's sake, but in order to follow the voice and the person of Jesus into something better and more beautiful than the place that you are. Where are you invited to take a step out and to trust him? And what are those doubts and what are those fears? When you came in, you should have received a slip of paper. Let me invite you to grab one of those now. If you're online, maybe you could grab a pen and a piece of paper right now. And I want to invite you to name some of those fears and doubts. The ones that are either keeping you from taking a step forward, and if you need a piece of paper, you can put up your hand and our connections team will bring one to you. But to name those doubts and those fears, those things that make you want to hold on to your boat, onto your safety spaces for dear life. Or if you're in the middle of the storm right now, the things that make you want to turn and to hold on to the side of the boat rather than to stay on the water with Jesus in that space. What are those places? I invite you to name them. Either now or in this response song. And just as our doubts... And the word for doubt literally means to be split into two. We're going to take those doubts, and when we come to the communion table, rather than being split, divided, torn by our doubts, we're going to take them and we're going to tear them in half and place them in the baskets that are at the base or at the side of the communion table as a way of saying, rather than being split by our doubts, being split by our fears, we're going to split them and divide them instead. We're going to tear them apart.
Instead, we're going to come to the communion table in a posture of hands open, saying, God, I come here to meet with you. I want to take a step out and follow you, to be brave and not safe, to take a holy risk with you, trusting that the places that you invite us into are better. And even in the midst of our raging storm, our breaking seas, that you can hold us there. That you are the great I am. The God who knows us, who created the waters, who knows our storms, and can hold us in the midst of them. We can trust you in those places because of who you are. You are the great I am. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this encounter that you had with Peter. In the midst of his storms that you could hold him, and in the midst of our own that you can hold us as well. And we come with our fears and our doubts, and choosing rather to be torn by them, to tear them in your presence, and to come and to seek to follow you. And we know that we don't have to do this by our own strength, but that you will hold us on the waters and in the storms. Amen.